0: Pushkin. Pushkin. Their slogan
3: was literally, bring the war home. And that was a metaphor at first, but it became a literal idea of like, they're going to go to war. We got to go to war.
4: I'm Khalil Gibran Muhammad. I'm Ben Austin.
2: We're two best friends. One black. One white. I'm a historian. And I'm a journalist. And this is some of my best friends are... Some of my best friends are like, I'm not a blank. Some of my best friends are blank. (laughs) In this show, we're gonna wrestle with the challenges. And the absurdities. Of a deeply divided
4: and unequal country. And today we're talking with Zayd Ayers Dorn about the lesser known history of radical movements in the 60s. There is so much to learn about the country we live in and the fights people have had to make it better.
2: Man, Khalil, I am so excited about our conversation today. Yes. We have Zaid Dorn on the show, one of my friends, and he has this podcast, Mother Country Radicals, mm, mm, like mm. on top 10 lists. Mm-hmm. It won awards. Yes. It is this amazing podcast that in a lot of ways is about his parents. That's right. Bernadine Dorn and Bill Ayers.
4: Mm. Yeah, listen, I think... Getting to talk to Zaid right now is so important because as the Democrats concede the House to the Republicans and the investigation of the coup attempt on January 6th, when a violent mob stormed the Capitol to try to subvert democracy, this is an inversion of the attempts by Bill and Bernadine Dorn back in the day to try to change America for the better. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you mean? What do you mean? Tell (laughs) tell our listeners who are Bill and Bernadine. Yeah. Well, they are original members of the Student for a Democratic Society, also known as SDS. So like we're talking 1960s. Yeah. Early 1960s, part of uh, a generation of young people who rejected the Cold War anti-communism of their parents started to look at the contradictions of American empire and inequality, the richest country on earth with, you know, huge pockets of poverty and most especially amongst black folks. And they wanted to change this country and they wanted to do something that they call participatory democracy. And it's interesting, as you well know, because Bill and Bernadine eventually break away from SDS. They totally broke away. They became members of the Weather Underground,
2: and a much more radicalized group that resorted to violence to fight what they thought was violence in the country.
4: Yeah, it was like violence on violence. And it's a complicated thing. And in many ways, most of us, our generation, were educated to to reject what they did, to think of this as a terrible uh, change in direction from a country that was getting it right, but in some ways couldn't be further from the truth.
2: Yeah, and th- I mean, this is what I love about Zaid's podcast and about our conversation today is that this question of what must we do? What should we do in the face of injustice? Yeah. In the face of grave injustice. So, the weathermen, the weather underground, Bernadine Dorn and Bill Ayers, they were going to risk it all because they thought the country needed to be changed and, and they were going to take radical action.
4: Yeah. And that came at a cost. I mean, Zaid's mother, Bernadine, becomes the most dangerous person in America. She is listed on the FBI's most wanted list by J. Edgar Hoover, the then director of the FBI.
2: Yeah, because they're doing
4: bombings and they're taking these actions that, are, that involve violence. Yeah, yeah. And let's just say, you know, as a trigger warning, we're not actually saying that they struck out to kill people. In fact, it's important just before we get started that the Weather Underground targeted buildings. They targeted property because it was important for them to make it clear that this country could not continue down the road that it was going.
2: And Zayd, because of this, ends up in the first part of his life living underground. Yeah. Um, you know, I know I know them from Chicago, but they're living in New York and Harlem, and they're hiding from the FBI early in his life. And he's going to talk to us about that. I got one other thing I want to say, Khalil. What's that? While we're talking to Zayd, he's got a cat walking around, and we hear it a couple times.
4: <laughs>
2: he- Just want to tell people like. It's not a sound effect
4: that we're putting in. Okay. <laughs> all right. I think people appreciate that, okay. especially all those cat lovers.
2: Yep. yep. Or the, the cat haters. <laughs> so let's, let's, uh, let's get to it. Let's talk to him. Zaid, hello. It's so great for you to join us on the podcast.
3: Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Khalil. Happy to be here.
2: Yeah, we're so excited to have you on the show, Zaid. So you're already one of my favorite people, (laughs) you know, I know your parents, uh, your dad and I, like a week or two ago, we drove to a prison together where we both teach and, you know, the whole way he's telling me stories and he's just so like positive and outgoing. And I was thinking about not too long ago, seeing your mom with your two daughters, her grandchildren in the local Michaels, the craft store you know, she's like tatted up your mom and like, you know, with all these bracelets and her, her granddaughters are like embarrassed of her. And I'm like, that's so interesting. Just the neighborhood,
4: like radical with her, like, you know, it was just so normalized. Not just radical, like one of America's most wanted.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. She's an institution. Although I will tell you, like you say, embarrassed of her and that's true sometimes, but it's also true that like, you know, they're bragging about her all the time. And actually when they listened to the podcast and like heard about her radical past, they came home saying to me and my wife, Rachel, like, how come you guys aren't as cool as the grandparents? Like,
2: <laughs> <laughs> I meant more embarrassed, like, I am in Michael's and why are you speaking so loudly?
3: Well, that they're definitely, that they're embarrassed about.
2: <laughs> so Zayd, I know you and your family from Chicago, from Hyde Park and from the area on the South side, but let's start this conversation maybe by talking about your childhood. You grew up underground, under an assumed name, and so you have this very early life before coming to Chicago where you're living in Harlem. And, and, and you and your parents are on the run from the FBI. I mean, that's crazy. Can you talk about that experience? What was it like? Uh, how much did you know? What did your parents tell you about, about living underground?
3: Yeah. My earliest memories are road trips and driving around and living in the Bay Area in California and sometimes in Harlem and New York and knowing that I had to call my parents, Rose and Tony,
2: Mm. You knew those weren't their names. Like I knew those weren't
3: their, their names. Yeah. And I knew that the FBI was chasing us, although I don't think I knew what the FBI was exactly. I mean, I knew something was chasing us. It didn't sound good. I knew we weren't supposed to get caught. I, I mean, the way my parents explained it to me was through kind of childhood metaphors. You know, they said, we're like Robin Hood, you know, stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. We're like mm. Luke Skywalker fighting against an evil empire, and, you know we're trying to fight against wow. racism we're like John Brown we're trying you know i mean those kind of people but they would say you know the government is doing a lot of bad things and we're fighting against them and you know sometimes you have to resist the government when it's in the wrong like these people did and so i knew all those stories growing up and i knew that they were outlaws i knew that we if they got caught they'd go to jail so that was a a lot to absorb as a kid but at the same time i mean i, I the weird thing is it never seemed Strange to me, like any kid, you're growing up. It's all you've ever known. I just figured that's how things were. Most of my friends were also on the run. I had friends, you know, who were children of Weathermen, children of Black Panthers, and BLA people,
4: and yeah. they were they were all fugitives. I think this is really fascinating because I I know all of us are socialized within the. Limitations of our own family. You know, I was a kid of an educator and a photographer, and I spent a lot of time both in my mom's classroom while she was teaching and on the road while my father was covering sports uh, or political events. But here you are being socialized within the context of this crazy radical movement. Like, (laughs) I mean, there are kids today who are overhearing their parents talk about the Trump era. And having some sense of dread and fear and anxiety that is passed on to them. I mean, I'm trying to figure out, like, did you do any independent research on your own? Did you pull out the Encyclopedia Britannica, look up John Brown and say, let me just try to figure out exactly what's going on here? Or did you feel, even in the conversations on the playground of Harlem, like that you were the only kid having this experience and no other kid was like this except for you and your your two brothers?
3: I mean, the weirdest thing about it is that I wasn't the only kid. I mean, I was. Of course, I was the only kid who was whose mom had been on the FBI's ten most wanted
4: list. But who replaced Angela Davis, by the way, just for our listeners, right? Right,
3: (laughs) that's true. Yeah, but you know, in in my school in New York at PS eighty four, I knew other kids whose parents were in prison. I knew other kids whose parents had broken the law. I knew other kids who visited their dad in jail. So yeah, I mean, it was weird, but it wasn't that weird. And Mm. so yeah, I was socialized into it. I mean, I felt like. I knew there was something unusual about my parents, but I admired them, still admired them. I mean, I felt like they didn't lie to me. You know, one thing when people ask me, like, how come you didn't rebel against your parents? First of all, I did rebel hmm. against my parents the way every kid does, right? But- You became a playwright. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I became a writer and an artist instead of an activist or whatever. But no, I mean, I just mean like, I didn't come home some nights in high school and I did stuff they probably wouldn't have approved of, but- like making friends with the cops. To me. Like, what, <laughs> not that kind of the- thing. That's what I mean. Like this, I think when people say, did you rebel? What they mean is like, were you like Michael P. Keaton, like being a Reagan, uh, you know, like right winger. Yeah, yeah. And I was not that at all. And, and yeah. I think the reason for that is I think Fa- family ties reference yeah, family going deep eighties <laughs> here, guys. So
4: just just for our audiences, that was one of my favorite shows, by the way.
3: Because Khalil, you were you were <laughs> like Michael P. Keaton. You were totally had that vibe.
4: I was the Malik P. Keaton.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Malik P. Keaton. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, I I didn't have that instinct, and I think the reason is. I think a lot of kids rebel against their parents because they notice the hypocrisy. You know, they see like their parents say one mm. thing but and then they do another thing. My parents, you know, they made mistakes. They have problems, but they are what they say they are. And when I was a kid, you know, if I asked yeah. them questions about it, if I was like, why is the FBI chasing you? What did you do? The answers were real you know they they didn't lie to me about those things and they never hid from me the fact that they were wanted and so i never felt like i was being deceived i just felt like we were born into this situation and we had to make the best of it
2: let's take a quick break and when we come back we're going to talk more about zade's podcast mother country radicals it's so damn good
5: Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan, Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC.
1: The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com now.
6: Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100
2: Welcome back to Some of My Best Friends Are. We're here with Zaid Dorn. Zaid, I just want to tell you how fantastic your podcast is. Thanks. Mother Country Radicals. It is great in so many different ways. One is just the storytelling that you have. Like you are an amazing writer and storyteller. The archival tape that digs into the history of radical movements in the 60s and 70s. And then the interviews you have—you interview your parents, of course, but everyone from Angela Davis to Black Panthers to the FBI, the FBI agents who hunted them—you got it all. Yeah, it's a sweeping history, and then it's also such an intimate
4: story. Just before you you go further, Ben, I, I just really appreciate how sensitive you are to the tensions both not romanticizing the relationship between, say, SDS and what becomes the Weathermen Mm -hmm. and the Black Panther Party and what becomes the Black Liberation Army, Uh, but you find really effective ways to show the nuances in those relationships and through storytelling to to actually help people who don't really know this history very well to understand precisely why they would work together and what they had in common and what they shared in common, Mm -hmm. including the name of this podcast. You say that mother country radicals is a term that Fred Hampton uses to describe Bernadine and Bill and so many others as people who come from within this country and want to change it. And it's fascinating. Here's a clip of Fred Hampton spelling out this solidarity and why he's choosing to call your parents that.
2: A lot of people don't understand the Black Panther Party's uh, relationship with white mother country radicals. But what we're saying is that there are white people in the mother country that are for the same types of things that we are for. And we said that we would work with
1: anybody and form coalition with anybody that has revolution on their mind.
4: I just think that's a really terrific intervention, even for professional historians who have often written about this as one or the other, as the new left or the Black militant phase of the Black freedom struggle.
3: No, I appreciate that. That's exactly the intervention we were hoping to make and, and the thing we thought was missing from the histories. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Maybe the best way for us to dive in is to talk about your mom, Bernadine Dorn. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us who she was growing up mm-hmm. and how she became radicalized?
3: Yeah, I mean it's it's a crazy story, and frankly, a story I didn't really fully understand myself before I started working on on the show. But um yeah, and the first episode is about my mom's path from kind of small town Wisconsin, daughter of a Jewish immigrant. He her dad was was this deep believer in the American dream sort of a small-time salesman in in Green Bay, Wisconsin, staunch Republican, voted for Joe McCarthy, wanted his daughters to kind of have the American dream. So my mom was the first person in her family to go to college, ended up in Chicago at the University of Chicago, ended up in law school, and then-
2: You You know, I I think my father actually taught her. That's wild. Yeah, that makes sense.
4: Yeah. And by the way, mm-hmm. just because just I, I need to say this for listeners, your mom goes to the UFC at a moment when it is, bec- it is about to become like the headquarters of some of the most conservative thinking, <laughs> Milton Friedman, libertarianism, 100%. school voucher, school choice, um, yep. the economics of free market capitalism, all of it is unfolding right at this moment.
3: You know, the two most famous people in my mom's graduating law school class were her and John Ashcroft, George Bush's mm, attorney yeah. general. They just had their reunion and they were the two speakers. So that's that's <laughs> how weird this class is. Yeah.
2: Well, that's incredible.
3: But anyway, she ends up at the University of Chicago and ends up volunteering for Dr. Martin Luther King's uh, rent strike in Chicago. So she starts kind of just as a sort of a volunteer legal assistant trying to give advice to tenants who are trying to fight the slumlords in Chicago. and ends up marching with Dr. King, ends up meeting Muhammad Ali, ultimately meeting Fred Hampton, and really kind of following those leaders of the movement into a more and more radical stance against the Vietnam War and racism. So it is this crazy arc between small town girl in Wisconsin ends up FBI's top 10 most wanted list. And it's a story that could have only happened at that moment
4: just to dwell on this for a moment in chicago so it's 1966 the civil rights movement at least of the legislative phase of it yep. uh, with the passage of the accommodations bill in 64 and then voting rights act in 65 some believed at that moment that you know the victory had been won and yet king mm-hmm. redirects the movement uh and takes it to this open housing campaign to essentially fight against entrenched segregation in chicago where the legacies of redlining and all of it yep. are in in full view one
3: of the most radical interventions Dr. King made was saying, "Not only are we going to focus on the kind of economic freedom and the and the redlining and the real estate question, but we're going to do it in Chicago." I mean, he explicitly says, "We've come to Chicago to show that racism isn't just a Southern problem; it's an American right. problem." Right. That's right. Um, so, yeah, she's with Dr. King, sees him get hit by rocks as they're marching in Gage Park. Basically, she's at an eviction. The sheriffs have taken some you know, family's belongings out of their house and piled them up on the sidewalk. And all these people have gathered to watch this. And she's watching it as a kind of legal advisor who's trying to help people who are being evicted, but they all feel pretty helpless and they're standing around. And then this man mm. next to her asks her to hold her mm. his coat. <laughs> and she looks over and it's Muhammad Ali, most famous person wow. in the world at that point. Maybe. Wow. And
2: she says to you, "Have you ever stood next to an NBA player, like somebody who's present?"
3: <laughs> yeah, she says she could. She could sense the yeah. size of the guy and just how <laughs> imposing he was. But she didn't know who he was at first. And then she looked up, and it's Muhammad Ali standing right there. She's holding his, you know, seersucker jacket. He walks forward. He picks up a table that the sheriffs have taken out of these these people's house. And for my mom, that was a, a moment of just realizing. What direct action could look like when you yeah, when you were yeah. able to kind of lead people in that way with with action not words and and how how much of a difference that could make
2: so she takes it a, more than a step further <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know so she sees direct action she sees protest and she decides that's not enough yeah i mean maybe you can describe how and why she turns to violence to violent acts against this country yeah.
4: as her form of protest i wondered if your Mom thought of it as violence. In other words, I mean, one of the things the podcast keeps coming back to and, and mm-hmm. making clear is that American imperialism is by definition violent. So mm-hmm. did she actually call it violence in the early days? Or did she see it that way?
3: I think that yeah, I would say that they her idea, their idea, the weathermen, were thinking about violence a lot. And what they were thinking about is that all the violence was on the side of the state. And so you know, how did she go from thinking, okay, that, that kind of nonviolent, you know, Martin Luther King, Muhammad Ali, direct action, all the way to we should fight back with bombs and guns? Well, the first mm. thing that happened was Martin Luther King was murdered. And for her, that was a big yeah. turning point, you know, that, that mm. his movement, you know, his nonviolent activism was met with this lethal violence from white vigilantes in America. So that was one thing that happened. And then the next thing that happened was the Vietnam War escalated and all this marching and protesting and and kind of Trying to stop it through voter registration drives and demonstrations didn't seem to be working, and thousands of people were being killed every day. So that was the second thing. And then the mm. third thing is they became, you know, allies with the Black Panthers, and in particular with Fred Hampton, who my mom was quite friendly with. Who's a chairman of the Illinois
2: chapter of the Black Panther movement? I he's like 19, or I think at that point. He's- I
3: think he was twenty, yeah, but you know, young guy. Five years younger than my mom, charismatic as hell. Yeah, and brilliant, and a real analysis. And kind of, the FBI singled him out as a potential, you know, black messiah who they were worried might be able to, you know, unite the the black freedom movement and kind of really threaten the American government.
4: And just for just just because it's important because this is a, connected to your own uh, your own story. Yeah but that he was actually connecting his analysis of American capitalism and, and empire to the conditions of poor white people in Chicago, 100%. along with, with brown people. So this wasn't just unifying the Black freedom struggle, it was also unifying across across racial differences for people who had a similar class analysis.
3: That's exactly right. He called it the Rainbow Coalition. It was the original, before Jesse Jackson's Rainbow Coalition. It was Fred mm-hmm. Hampton's Rainbow Coalition. Mm-hmm. And, and my mom was the president of SDS at the time, Students for Democratic Society, and SDS was one of the members of the Rainbow Coalition. So she was literally representing the kind of white student wing of Fred Hampton's multiracial coalition. So she was following his example, and he was doing an incredible job of organizing all these disparate people into this, this powerful movement in Chicago, and he was being targeted by the FBI and by police, you know, first with harassment and arrest and Uh, intimidation. And then ultimately he was murdered by the Chicago police. And I think for a lot of activists, white and black, it was that series of kind of watching black leaders be targeted and killed over and over again, King and Medgar Evers and Fred Hampton and, and others. And, you know, they started the white activists, like my mom started to feel like we have to do more. We can't, you know, be doing these peaceful marches and resting on our privilege, which is our privilege that, The police are not going to come and kill us because there would be an uproar, but they're willing to kill black leaders. And so we have to do more to try to kind of pull the attention of law enforcement away from the Panthers and make them focus on something else. So that was, I think that, I mean, it's more complicated than that, of course, but the the road to violence was about watching state violence be enacted over and over and over and thinking like, we can't just take this. We have to, we have to give something back. And their slogan was literally bring the war home. And that was a metaphor at first, but it became a literal idea of like, they're going to go to war, we got to go to war.
4: In uh, episode three, you mentioned explicitly that in 1969 alone, police had killed 27 Black Panthers and had arrested 700 others. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I learned from the podcast is that part of the strategy of the Weathermen working with either Black Panthers or the Black Liberation Army was to take some of the heat off of them, to to essentially absorb some of the state violence um, by creating enough chaos through targeted strategic bombing so that the state would focus on them at key moments as opposed to just focusing on, on Black radicals. That's I, 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 pretty incredible.
3: Yeah. And, you know, it's funny, you mentioned earlier the kind of the intervention we tried to do with kind of reestablishing the history of the fact that this really was a movement about racism as much as anything else. I think traditionally, when people have written about the Weathermen and about white activists in the 60s in general, they tend to focus on the anti-war activism, which was certainly a part of it. But every time I went back to the records that, you know, I have a, there's archival audio of my dad giving a speech right before the Days of Rage demonstration, and he's literally saying we have to take to the streets to draw the attention of the police away from the Black Panthers. That's the the motivation.
0: This fall in Chicago, we will lead massive demonstrations against the war in support of the Black Panther Party and in solidarity with all political prisoners.
3: And every Mm -hmm. time my parents issued a communique later when they were bombing buildings and stuff, the communiques are always about this is in solidarity with the Black prisoners and the Black Panther Party. And a lot of their just self-conception was we have to be out there. We have to be making noise in order to make the government pay attention to us instead of just being able to target black leaders.
2: I mean, so Zaid, you, you bringing that up. One of the moments in the podcast that has stayed with me since hearing it was I think it's your mother at uh, an SDS convention in 1969, mm-hmm. and and I think that's when they talk, they become the action faction, yeah, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're like, we need to take more radical revolutionary action. But she's up on stage with with Black Panthers, and in a way, there's this choice presented to her of fighting misogyny or fighting white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think about your mom in that moment, <laughs> and she makes a choice of fighting white supremacy, but I don't even think she sees it in that choice, you know, that she made that choice. Maybe you could unpack that a little bit.
3: I found it to be a fascinating moment and I ended up focusing on it a lot because she was at that point, the national secretary of the biggest, well, mostly white student anti-war group in the country. And they were trying to decide what was the way forward. And a lot of the people within SDS were kind of the, they were like the Bernie bros of the time. They, they were <laughs> white kids yeah. who wanted to like focus on class, more than race, they wanted to go in the factories and organize workers, and you know they were Marxists and they wanted a kind of a class analysis. Mm-hmm. And my mom and her allies in what they called the Action Faction or what became the Weathermen group were thinking like we have to follow the lead of black activists here in America and uh, radical nationalist anti-imperialist movements abroad, like the Viet Cong, like the Tupamaros. You know they they all had a similar kind of sense of fighting American hegemony, but my mom was about focusing on race and on imperialism. And so the the moment you're talking about, Ben, what the choice that was presented to her is she was giving a speech at this big convention. There was already a lot of internal dissension and fighting within the group. And the Black Panthers showed up and she had actually invited them to come and speak. Yeah, And they were giving a speech about race and about American power. And one of them said a couple of sexist things. He's, you know, somebody asked mm. him what the place of uh, women in the movement was. And he said, prone, yeah, that's yeah, the position, right. you know, And and people started booing and there was a whole uproar about it. And, you know, my mom was presented with this moment of like, do I denounce the Panthers for as being sexist? Or do I kind of embrace the idea that like when given a choice, white activists have to stand up for black people. And for her, that was she says in the podcast, that was an easy choice, mm, that yeah. she considers herself a feminist, but she also thought the Panthers were a important feminist allies. Angela Davis, you know, and, and 60% of the Panthers at the time were women. So yeah. in any case, she decides, no, the SDS has to follow the Panthers. And she basically makes a declaration from the stage. And she says, we, you know, we have to be on the, on the side of the vanguard of the revolution. Anybody who's with me, we're leaving.
5: White youth must choose sides now. We must either fight on the side of the oppressed, or
4: be on the side of the oppressor.
3: And she led half, mm-hmm. the, half the group out of the convention hall and split SDS in half. Yeah. More than in half. I mean, she basically, the, the, the group never recovered. SDS was broken as an institution, but that's where the kind of kernel of the weathermen came from.
4: What a badass your mom is. <laughs> you know? Picking up on your mom's commitments here and essentially saying that the Black Panthers are the vanguard of the revolution and we have to follow their lead. Mm. I mean, it seems to me that that break that inflection point in this radical movement has actually never come back together again mm-hmm. I've been involved in a number of conversations with with leftists over the years you know many of whom are, are white men and there still remains this kind of class analysis that hasn't taken stock of history yeah. <laughs> right that that Marxism couldn't account for uh, slavery mm-hmm. uh, that the 20th century, labor movements in the United States failed repeatedly to recognize the shared interest of black workers and consistently chose whiteness over solidarity. And here we are, you know, in this moment of the 60s. And I, I guess I'm just really struck by how your mom made this issue of sticking with and standing up for black people. You know, I think at some point the podcast says it's the central dilemma of American history. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to hear you talk a little bit more about that because it's a recurring thread in the podcast itself.
3: Yeah, you know, it was complicated. I mean, part a lot of the show is about the complexities of trying to be whatever you know. People talk about allyship today, right? Every time I mentioned being allies, both to the Weathermen and to the Panthers, they all said we weren't allies; we were comrades. And I would try to say, <laughs> "Well, what does that mean? Like, what's the difference?" And and they would say, hmm. "You know, allyship means you're just kind of like, yeah, I'm on your side. Comradeship means." you're literally standing shoulder to shoulder and fighting together.
2: Your hands are getting dirty. You're not, you're not, you're not from afar. Yeah.
3: Yeah, exactly. And, and so these were people, I mean, again, there were problems all throughout and I don't mean to hold it up as some kind of like, this was an idyllic utopian society, but if you listen to the series, I think you do see a model of like people who were fighting together for the liberation of black people, but the liberation of all people. I mean, I think the weathermen were pretty convinced that, white people couldn't be free until black people were also free and that, you know, they were therefore literally on the same side and literally fighting for the same thing. And so, yeah, what I, what I was impressed by with, you know, going back over this, this history is that for over a decade, these people in the Panther Party, in the Black Liberation Army, and in the Weathermen were literally on the run together and giving, aid and comfort to each other and aiding and abetting each other while on the run. And that was that was real solidarity and a real attempt to, you know, not to, to say like there's some theoretical economic model that we should all be kind of focused on as the only way to have a revolution, but really saying, right. look, there's injustice right here. We all have to fight it together. And I think that there's something powerful about
4: that. Yeah,
2: you know? yeah, for sure.
4: And just something powerful about your parents' commitments, your mom and dad. I mean, you are named from one of the members of the Black Liberation Army mm-hmm. who was very much committed to these shared radical movements and who dies. And for the sacrifice he made, your parents wanted his memory to to live on. And I think that's pretty incredible.
3: Yeah, I'll tell you, it's funny, you know, one of the, one of the most moving parts about it for me was I'd never really knew much about the man I'm named after, Zaid mm. Shakur, you know. And so to get to talk to some of these guys like, Jamal Joseph or Sekou Odinga, these Black Liberation Army guys who who knew Zaid. You know, of course, I never met him. He was killed years before I was born. But hearing some of the anecdotes about him, you know, that he was this super sharp dresser and and a tailor who made dashikis for the members of the mm-hmm. of the party and everything. Something really fun about digging back into your own history, your own prehistory, and uh, you know, finding out the real lives of the people who, whose names you carry.
4: Yeah. So we are talking to Zaid Ayers Dorn, named after Zaid Malik Shakur, <laughs> and also talking about his radical parents, Bernadine Dorn and Bill Ayers, and his amazing podcast, Mother Country Radicals. We're gonna take a break, and after we come back, we're gonna talk about the future, about lessons that we can learn from this past.
5: And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.
6: Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect
2: Welcome back to Some of My Best Friends Are. We're here with Zaid Dorn. Zaid, you say in Mother Country Radical that you make the podcast in part for your children, for your daughters, and your kids and my kids are in school together. They know one another. They hang out. They're classmates. They're growing up together. And I'm thinking, like, so what are the lessons? Right now in this country, you know, we feel like white supremacy is ascendant again what should we be doing? Like, what is the lesson from the podcast, from this past that you dig into in how should we be fighting injustice?
3: I think there's a couple lessons. I mean, I'll start with the the slightly more depressing one, Uh, because, you know, one of the things you do get a sense of, I think, listening to the podcast, certainly I got a sense making it, is how intractable some of these problems are, how for all the fighting that these people did, how much we're still living in that world of racism and white supremacy. I mean, one of the most vivid things for me is I was making this show during the pandemic. I was interviewing people over Zoom and over and over again I was having these conversations with people, weathermen and black panthers, and I would ask them why they were radicalized. And over and over again the answer was because of police killing a, a black person. Mm, you know, mm, so right, it was right. my mom radicalized by the killing of Fred Hampton, Jamal Joseph radicalized first by the killing of Fred Hampton and then by the killing of this 10-year-old boy Clifford Glover in Queens in 1974, shot in the back by an undercover cop. And so, you know, and I heard all these stories over and over. And while I was doing these interviews, George Floyd was murdered by the police. And, you know, we had the uprisings on the street and and you couldn't help but be struck by the cyclical nature of history and how disturbing and depressing it is that these people fought so hard against white supremacy, against police violence. And here we are in 2020, 2021, still dealing with the same problems. So one lesson was the fight is not over, you know, Mm -hmm, and that that mm -hmm. can be a depressing lesson. The other lesson, though, was, you know, it is impressive to me that every generation throws up these people willing to fight back, willing to put themselves on the line, willing to put their shoulders to the wheel or whatever you want to say. Right. And we do have these movements now, you know, everything from Black Lives Matter to Sunrise to March for Our Lives, young people who are rediscovering a kind of an activist spirit and wanting to change the world in some way. And I think, you know, every time we're in a place in this country where it feels like bleak and like, you know, authoritarianism and, and law and order, racism are ascendant. You also get people fighting back against that and saying like, that's not the world we want to live in. We want a better world. And so I think that's the way progress works, you know, progress works through sort of, Radical revolutionary imagination. And then there are, there is a, a reaction to that and, and a kind of a, a pushing back. And so progress is halting and it's two steps forward, one step back. But I think when you look at this history, you can't help but feel inspired by both the young people of that time, the members of the Weather Underground, the Black Liberation Army, and the young people of today who are trying to figure out, you know, a better way forward.
2: So I want to, I want to hold here and go back even to that, that question I asked about the lessons from your parents and their activism, because they resorted to violence or not, not even resorted. They took to the streets and they they committed violent acts to oppose the violence of the state, as you said. Yep. And that lesson for today for, you could say for our kids, like, what are you willing to sacrifice in the face of injustice? And, you know, here we have racial apartheid in the, in the country then, and we have a lot of it now. Mm -hmm. And I think of also of your generation, like you, you made this podcast Mm -hmm. and, you know, you told this deep history and you explore like, as you call them, weather kids and panther cubs. Yeah the children of these radicals, like you guys experienced that sacrifice that your parents chose fighting over family. Mm -hmm. So what's that lesson?
3: I think, well, that's a big question. I mean, I spend a lot of time in the podcast thinking, of course, I, you know, I grew up, on the run. And then with my mom in jail, we adopted my brother Chesa, whose parents did decades in prison. I also talk on the show to Kakuya Shakur, the daughter of Asada Shakur, yep. who's still underground 40 years later, 50 years later, living uh, on the run in Cuba for her As- activism. Asada is. Yeah. 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 Asada was the kind of figurehead and kind of leader of the Black Liberation Army for a time and, and ended up fleeing to Cuba after breaking out of prison. And I talked to her daughter, Kakuya, who's, it's been 20 some years since she saw her mom. She, Asada yeah. has never met her grandkids. So there are these real big sacrifices that these families made, the people themselves who committed the violent criminal acts, the radicals themselves, but also their children and their grandchildren. So the kind of um, fallout from those actions is real and people really suffered. But, you know, I, I, one of my favorite moments in the podcast is I, I sort of managed to secretly record a conversation between my dad, Bill, and my daughter, yeah. uh, who was 13 at the time. And as I was trying to figure out how to end the podcast, I happened to be sitting at dinner with them. And they just mm-hmm. got into an argument about John Brown over dinner.
4: The radical abolitionist who, who, who stormed Harper's Ferry in, ni- in 1859.
3: Exactly. And John Brown is a hero of my dad's, as a, a symbol of a kind of a white person willing to risk everything
2: He's got a big-ass tattoo of, of, of John Brown on his back, right?
3: Yeah, and yet and yet my 13-year-old daughter had been studying John Brown in school, and she came back home saying, he sounds crazy. I mean, he took his sons into yeah. this suicidal raid, and his sons were killed for this political idea. You know, she's a very sophisticated kid for a 13-year-old.
5: I mean, I don't want to diminish his sacrifice. Like, that's amazing, and he made a difference, but, like, come on. I mean, it but- was... It's not really a rational thing to give up your family and then yourself. Uh, Lamb to the slaughter type of deal.
3: So she's saying this and my dad's arguing with her. And I, of course, as a a good podcaster should, I slid my iPhone into the middle of the table and hit record.
6: No,
0: The the point is, when you say he was a fanatic, he was an extremist, that's true. And it's also true that the rational thing to do was just let slavery be. I mean, what are you going to do? That's crazy. To me, that's crazy. Um,
3: what do you think?
5: I don't like it. It unsettles me <laughs> to think about you or Bill caring about a political issue more than you care about me. I feel like it's like weird to think about a father who cares more about like big- sticking it to the man than his sons.
3: It ended up being kind of the sort of culminating moment of the show because they really have this interesting argument about what what is it worth to sacrifice and not all of us are able or willing to make the kind of sacrifices that John Brown or Asada Shakur made.
2: Or your parents, yeah.
3: Or my parents, but I don't think any, any of us would say the right moral thing is just always to protect your own family and let the world burn. So you have to find the line where you're willing to sometimes put yourself and the things you love on the line to make things better.
4: Well, you know, in listening to you answer that question, it hadn't occurred to me listening to this moment that you just described in the podcast itself. But here, all of a sudden, I'm like, look, you've, you've described the fact that your mom and dad, Bill Ayers, did what they did because the monopoly of violence by the state had created the conditions of suffering for all sorts of people, and most especially black people in the United States, and that that was the reason to do all of this. And yet, as you talk about, like how you describe this to your daughter and, and sacrifice and the trade-offs between, like self-care and being able to do something that won't risk your life and your children are orphaned and all this sort of thing, I'm also like, white Americans proudly boast of sacrificing their sons and daughters in military adventures all the time. Hundred percent. Mm,
2: well put, Khalil.
4: So this sort of routine notion of sacrifice in the interest of the American state, in the interest of patriotism, is unquestioned in this country. I mean, sure. you can't board a plane without giving it up to veterans for their sacrifices.
0: Yeah.
4: Every every sporting event, every, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. And so maybe it's just really about the socialization we've all, we've all come of age in, this notion that this other kind of sacrifice, this other kind of challenge to the state, to change the state, uh, is in fact the one that that we we shouldn't do because that's you know the costs are too great and that's that's crazy
3: I completely agree and I'll add one thing Khalil to that because I I think you're exactly right that nobody really truly believes that we shouldn't sacrifice or even that we should never use violence people believe that it is justified in certain circumstances I'll tell you the other thing people ask me about all the time is they'll say you know if I'm if I'm getting kind of hostile questions from a crowd or from a journalist the question often is something like you know, well, your parents did all this, they turned to violence, and it didn't work. And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, that's true. But like, the people who did nothing, they didn't end racism either, you know, and the idea that that kind of this because an intractable problem, a a problem, you know, the original sin of this country still persists. And people want to point at the activists and the radicals and the peace movement and the anti-racists and say, well, you're not making enough progress, but those are the people fighting for change, and it's the people doing nothing and resisting that change who are actually standing in in the way of progress. You know, so that's right. Everybody has to take a long look, especially white people in America, take a long look at what they're doing, what they're willing to do, and what they're not doing, and yeah. take seriously the fact that like it's easy to to throw stones from the sidelines. You know,
2: Zaid. I mean, I don't think your parents surprised you. In this podcast, like they live out loud, as you said, and they're sort of radically honest. You know, what was a surprise and sort of digging into their story, into their history?
3: Well, a couple of things really did surprise me, actually. I mean, it's true that they've always been honest, but they've also always hidden things from me. I don't blame them for it because a lot of it was not naming names and not talking about things that might right. implicate other people just being good-ass radicals like they don't they don't talk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My dad says often in the podcast I'll ask him a question and he says well, you know, that action I can't talk about. That thing I can't talk
6: about. <laughs> and
3: and yeah. it's often because it involves somebody else. You know, when it's just him, he's pretty willing to tell me things, but if it's an action that other people were involved in, he doesn't want to talk about it, and especially the actions that were collaborative actions between the white underground and the black underground. Nobody really wants to be the one to say what was happening because nobody wants to blow the whistle on the other side.
2: And there are people still in prison to this day.
3: But, you know, one thing that really did surprise me, and, and, and I found it, I really had to grapple with it, was that, you know, my whole childhood, one of the things they told me, one of the kind of founding myths of my life was that when they had me everything changed and they and they became parents and even though we were still underground we were still on the run from the FBI they decided you know we're no more violence and no more things that could put our lives at risk cuz we have a kid now and you know as a kid you want to feel like you're the the center of the world and like your parents would do anything for you and so that was always just something i accepted and one of the things as soon as i started digging into the timelines and putting things together and making spreadsheets and you know writing down chronologies about like what was going on when, I realized that that wasn't entirely true. And, and I started asking my dad about what he was actually doing <laughs> when I was a little kid. And so one of the mm-hmm. things that really surprised me is that they kept up their kind of violent revolutionary actions, even as parents, not t- quite to the same extent, but there were a couple of very risky things that happened when I was a, a toddler and, you know, actions in solidarity with the Black Liberation Army.
2: And how'd you make sense of that? Like, how did you feel?
3: I mean, I I, we had a lot of conversations about it and I had to kind of think about what to make of that, what it meant for my own self-conception or my conception of my parents as people who prioritize their kids. Well, you know, but what I ultimately make of it is that, like you said, I mean it surprises me, but it doesn't surprise me. I mean, it surprises me that Hmm. that these specific things happened, but when I really think about my parents, I always knew that if they were called upon by, you know, comrades in the black underground to help with something. There were very few things that were going to stand in the way of them trying to say yes to that, even having a kid at home. You know, so even today, even today. I mean, they're they're pretty committed people, and it, it's complicated. It makes my relationship with them complicated, but I also feel like I admire and respect the fact that for them, that fight and that struggle and that solidarity is as important as anything else in their lives.
4: Was it? I, I want to just uh, finish this conversation by saying that. Everyone should listen to your podcast. Thanks. Everyone should know this history. This is a history that even when I was in grad school more than 20 years ago, uh, was treated as as a failure in social movement history by mainstream historians, as a moment mm-hmm. when social movements went off track. And as you well know, neoconservatism of the 1980s, both in politics and even in scholarship, grew out of the reactionary uh, understanding of this moment. So you're helping to write the historical record and bringing it in such a wonderful storytelling way that uh, new generations of young people will have a chance to learn from this past and continue the struggle. So thank you so much, Zaid, for joining us today.
2: Thanks, Glue. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Zaid. It's really been amazing talking with you. Thanks, Ben. Great being here.
4: Oh, man, that was such a good conversation. It was. It was. Yeah, it has me thinking about this moment in the summer of 2020. Okay. When white activists in Portland were taking siege of a federal building, Hmm. and Donald Trump was sending undercover people in black vans and snatching people off the street. Uh, Or even the Lafayette Square moment when part of the park outside of the White House was on fire. And then generals were standing with Trump in a photo op.
2: So we're talking about the moment after George Floyd is murdered. And there are these protests across the country. And you're talking about the, the police response, the state response to kind of squash this.
4: Yeah. Uh, But I'm really talking about both. I mean, people were in the streets. And in some cases, there were buildings on fire. A whole police station burned up in Minneapolis. I mean, it looked exactly like what the grainy footage of the 60s was, uh, what I grew up seeing, what I read about. And the thing that's really fascinating, I mean, because that's something everyone listening to this show right now witnessed, is that so many people were asked the question and and i will say it happened for me too which is okay. like is this a moment for change in america is this the moment yeah. of the racial reckoning is this the moment where we finally get this right and journalists were asking this question people were writing about it i was participating you were in this moment and the thing that i said and i remember others saying as well including elected officials as long as people stay in the streets we will see change in this country only one is demanded is what you're saying. Only when it's demanded and only when there is a civil disobedience at a scale when you can't have business as usual. Yeah, yeah. And it it turned out to be right. I mean, we have the benefit of hindsight in this moment to look back now two years later and all these questions about whether this was a quote-unquote moment or movement have been answered. It was a fucking moment, right? I mean, Because once people are off the streets and,
2: and once the demand is gone... The the action has gone. The change is gone. The change is gone. Yeah, and yeah. There's this there's this line uh, from a Flannery O'Connor story that I often think about. Uh, she would have been a good woman if there was somebody there to shoot her every day of her life. Oh shit! <laughs> you know, without that, you ain't the good woman. <laughs> but only in that moment. I mentioned this while we were talking with Zaid, but there's that moment when his mother, Bernadine Doran, you know, chooses radicalism and she she forms the Action Faction. Mm-hmm. That phrase has just stuck with me. What you're saying, like, that's right. We need Action Faction. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, but then also all the things that that means. Because what does it mean to ask people to stay on the streets yeah. indefinitely? Yeah. I mean, what does that demand on people in terms of their lives? In terms of you know, society functioning and, you know, it's like we need the change, but also the demand on activists on, on all of us on society. It is an incredible amount. And that's kind of what we were digging into today. And, and you know, Zaid is so in a way, unlike his parents. Mm-hmm. And he says this on the podcast that, that he created that they, they believe in moral absolutes. And they they think with a kind of moral clarity, mm-hmm. and he's this playwright, this writer who who explores the ambiguities, who explores the complexities, and in a way that's not action faction, <laughs> but it's a way why this podcast and exploring these ideas is so fascinating. Yeah, and to show the context and and the what's at stake here.
4: Yeah. Well, I I think one takeaway at least for me is that uh, what the '60s presented as a choice in the way that. Bernadine and Bill made it, which is to say, you know, even if you have to make a personal sacrifice, that's the only way things change. And we are at that moment again, and we don't know what's around the corner in 2023, but I think we do know that bodies in the street and sacrifices are a crucial ingredient to social movement change. And, you know, let's hope that we can be part of encouraging people and inspiring people to do that work.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's really well put. And I think I think this podcast that that, you know, that we're doing, but also that Zay did is exactly doing that. Yeah. Yeah.
4: All right. All right, man. Well, Khalil, love you. Love you, too, man. Some of my best friends are is a production of Pushkin Industries. The show is written and hosted by me, Khalil Gibran Muhammad, and my best friend, Ben Austin. It's produced by John Asante and Lucy
2: Sullivan. Our editor is Jasmine Morris. Our engineer is Amanda K. Wong.
4: And our executive producer is Mia Lobel. At Pushkin, thanks to Letal Molad, Julia Barton, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, John Schnars, Greta Cohn, and Jacob Weisberg.
2: Our theme song, Little Lily, is by fellow Chicagoan, the brilliant Avery R. Young from his album, Pubmin. You definitely want to check out his music at his website, averyryoung.com. You can find Pushkin
4: on all social platforms at Pushkin Pods, and you can sign up for our newsletter at pushkin.fm. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. And if you like our show,
2: please give us a five-star rating and a review. And listen, even if you don't like it, give it a five-star rating and a review. And please tell all of your best friends about it. Thank you.
3: I love your guys' podcast. I feel like it's it's one of those honors to be on it. I've been listening, and it's going to be weird to be like the guest, you know?
4: <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll wait till you hear how we chop it up. It's going to be even better. Yeah, you, you're not
6: actually going to be in
2: it. Yeah. So <laughs> it's just back and forth. With us. It's just an episode
3: about Ben. Yeah. <laughs>